Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five definitely a five. It's the story of not one or two, but three different murders on the grounds of Stanford University. In the course of two years, three young women were violently killed at the college in Stanford, California, and all three remained cold cases for nearly 50 years. That is, until DNA technology brought out the smoking guns investigators needed to finally link the killers to their heinous crimes. This episode is titled, Slayings at Stanford. So without further ado, let's get started. This story takes place in the 1970s on the grounds of Stanford University. Though the university is actually located in Stanford, it also neighbors Palo Alto, California, which is a city in Santa Clara County, and it's only about a 40-minute drive to San Francisco from Palo Alto. According to ABC's 2020, during this time in the 70s, the San Francisco area was booming with a new music and free love movement, and the drug culture was exploding across the area as well. But it was also a time where the area faced a string of violent crimes and murders. And San Francisco is even considered to be the birthplace of the American serial killer. You know, the dudes who end up being white males extremely sly, manipulative, and cunning, guys who would convince anyone that they were simply the guy next door, like the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Charles Manson, just to name a few. So that was the climate and culture during this time, which kind of puts everything into a little more perspective as we go through the episode. Now, let's go back to the summer of 1974, when a 19-year-old young woman, Arliss K. Dykema married her high school sweetheart, Bruce Perry. Arliss and Bruce were originally from Bismarck, North Dakota, where they attended high school and got married in Arliss's home church. After saying, I do, the newlyweds moved to California and started married life at Stanford, where Bruce began attending college as a pre-med student and Arliss began working as a receptionist at a Palo Alto law firm. The two moved into on-campus housing, specifically in Quillen Hall in Escondido Village. Then, about two months after getting married and moving to Stanford, on October 12, 1974, Bruce and Arliss got into some sort of a spat, according to Palo Alto Online. 
Oxygen reported the two had been walking to the mailbox that night, and around 11 p.m. as they were walking, Arliss and Bruce began arguing about checking the tire pressure in their car. After they argued for a bit, Arliss, being a religious woman and a devout Christian, told Bruce she was going to go to Stanford's chapel on campus to pray. That chapel was the Memorial Church. And Bruce later reported that he watched her walk off in the direction of the chapel between 11 and 11.30 p.m. Palo Alto Online reported that other people corroborated this story and saw Arliss at the chapel at about 11.35 p.m. They remembered this time specifically because that is the time that the night watchman, or technically the security guard, told people at the church the iconic landmark at Stanford, he told them that it would be closing in about 15 minutes. You see, it was the security guard's job to open the church every morning and lock it up at night. And FYI, the security guard, a guy named Stephen Blake Crawford, was the only one with keys to the chapel. Now let's fast forward to a little later to just after midnight. At this time, Bruce Perry became worried about his new bride when she still hadn't returned home, so he went to the church to look for her. When he got there, though, the church doors were locked, and Arliss was nowhere to be found, even after he looked around for her, trying to trace the steps of where she might have gone. But when Arliss still hadn't come home by 3 a.m., Bruce decided to call police and report his wife missing. Police responded and went to the Stanford campus to look around, but came up with nothing. Then police reached out to the security guard, Stephen Crawford, to inquire if he saw anything while he was on duty, if he saw any signs of Arliss at all. But Crawford told them that he locked the church doors just before midnight, and then he said he had actually done another sweep on the church grounds at around 2 a.m., but he reported that he had not seen anything unusual. That is, until around 5.30 a.m. when Crawford called the police back. Why? Because according to him, when he opened up the church that morning, he found Arliss, but she had been brutally murdered and her body had been placed at the front of the church just underneath a large cross, which appeared to be positioned in some sort of a ritualistic manner. But here's the thing. When Crawford called police to tell them about the body he had just shockingly discovered, well, he didn't sound that shocked at all. And let me tell you how he relayed this information when he called police. Crawford said, quote, hey, we've got a stiff here, end quote. Um, what the fuck, man? Who says it like that? And even an investigator who later worked the case, Sergeant Rick Alanis, said in all his years in law enforcement, he has never, ever heard anyone use that term to describe a dead body or a deceased victim of a crime. It's just so insensitive. Anyway, when police arrived to the Memorial Church, they found a very, very gruesome and disturbing scene, which I am going to describe to you, but I will warn you that it is very hard to hear, so if you don't think you can handle it, I totally understand, and I recommend you skipping ahead about 30 seconds or so. But according to Palo Alto Online, they found Arliss's body lying under a cross to the left of the altar. She was lying on her back with her legs spread open. 
Her right arm was pinned under her waist and she was naked from the waist down. Her killer also stabbed her in the head with an ice pick, which was still in her head when police arrived to process the scene. According to Oxygen.com, she was also sodomized with a five-foot-long church candle, and another candle had been forced into her chest through her blouse. She also had wounds on her neck consistent with strangulation. However, the coroner at the time determined that Arliss's actual cause of death was from the ice pick in the back of her head. And he determined that she died around midnight that night. Oxygen.com reported that after the murder, the dean of the chapel was brought in, and when he saw the scene, he said, quote, Well, this must be the work of the devil. End quote. During this time, while they were processing the crime scene, police gathered two pieces of DNA evidence. The first was a pillow near Arliss's body that had semen on it, and the other was a partial palm print on one of the candles. According to Oxygen.com, however, the print wasn't enough to actually link it to any suspect. But guess who disappeared for about two hours and was nowhere to be found during a time when they actually needed to talk to him the most? That would be Crawford, the security guard. Yeah, for some reason, the guy just disappeared for a couple of hours before later reappearing out of nowhere. Hmm, wonder what that's about. Anyway, police immediately began working to find out who in the hell could be responsible for this gruesome crime. Of course, Arliss's husband, Bruce Perry, was a suspect, but he was later ruled out after he passed a polygraph. The person they were most suspicious about, though, was, you guessed it, Crawford. I mean, he was the only person with keys to the building, and he was the person who discovered Arliss's body that morning. Plus, according to an article by the Stanford News Service, there was no sign of forced entry and no evidence of a major struggle. It appeared that Arliss had gotten locked inside the church with her killer, who had snuck up behind her and attacked her. However, in an episode of ABC's 2020, police said the burden of proof for a homicide is a very high bar, and at the time, they just didn't have enough key pieces of evidence to connect Crawford to the murder. And according to Palo Alto Online, DNA testing wasn't available in criminal cases until the mid-80s. So, even though police did chase a few leads, they kept coming back to Crawford but they just didn't have enough evidence to charge him, so the case went cold. However, according to 2020, law enforcement ended up following Crawford just in case, and they did end up collecting DNA from a cigarette he had discarded behind him. Then, they eventually were able to develop a DNA profile, which they kept on file for over 15 years, until the DNA finally paid off. At a press conference, Santa Clara County Sheriff Lori Smith said that advances in forensics and DNA testing allowed the case to be reopened. The person leading the investigation was Sergeant Rick Alanise, who said he spent months reviewing decades of reports, creating fastidious spreadsheets of all the evidence, and he reviewed recordings from the night of the murder. But again, they continued circling back around to Crawford. Especially because, remember when I said he disappeared for about two hours while police were processing the scene back in 1974? 
Well, Sergeant Alanis told 2020 that he thinks Crawford left to change his clothes and discard evidence. So hopefully he was thinking that they wouldn't find anything to connect him to the crime. But DNA does not lie, folks. And Sergeant Alanis caught the break in the case that he was looking for. In 2015, Alanis was re-examining some of the evidence and he realized that a key piece of that evidence appeared to be mislabeled. Inside the evidence bag were a pair of Levi's jeans. The label on the outside read Arliss Perry, but Alanis noticed the jeans were a size 36-32, a much larger size than Arliss would have worn. It was way too large for her stature. And they soon realized that these pants were Bruce Perry's pants, not the pants of Arliss Perry and not the pants that Arliss was wearing that night. So they ended up finding Arliss's pants in the evidence and immediately sent them to the crime lab for testing because apparently they also realized that the pants had never been tested at all. And soon, they found out that a DNA profile was located on Arliss's pants, and that partial DNA profile was a match to the DNA of Stephen Crawford. So, in 2016, Sergeant Alanis brought Crawford in for an interview. When Alanis started questioning him, though, Crawford shut down. Alanis asked him, any reason why your DNA would be on her blue jeans? Crawford responded, only because I was there. Alanis said, okay. Will any reason your DNA would be on her panties? And Crawford said, quote, I don't think so. Was she dressed at the time or end quote? Then he got super defensive, said he was starting to feel like he was being interrogated, and he shut the interview down and went home. The next big event in this nearly 45-year-old cold case came in 2018 when Sergeant Alanis and his team obtained a search warrant for Crawford's apartment. Their intent, of course, was to search his house and arrest him. So even though they had a search warrant, Alanis told 2020 that he decided to approach the situation a bit differently. After all, he knew they kind of only had one shot at this, and given Crawford's defensive behavior in their previous encounters, Alanis knew Crawford needed to feel like he was in control, rather than the police being in control. And that's how they approached the search warrant, with caution and as subtle and as low-key as they possibly could. So Sergeant Alanis and a team of officers went to Crawford's apartment in San Jose and simply knocked on the door to see if he'd answer. Well, he didn't. (laughs) But when they continued knocking, Crawford finally peeked his head out from behind the blinds in his apartment and hollered at them through the window. He basically said that he wasn't dressed and he just needed some time to put on some clothes before he could let them inside. Crawford, though, who was now a 72-year-old man, was basically just stalling and buying time because after they waited for a much longer time than what it should have taken Crawford to actually put on clothes, the police decided to just go ahead and go in. They ended up obtaining a key from the apartment manager and began to slowly make their way inside. But as Alanis was entering, he quickly spotted a gun and he immediately retreated down. 
Alanis, though, couldn't exactly make out everything he saw in the apartment. All he knew was that he saw Crawford with a gun in his hands. And that's when he ducked down and he actually ducked under an air conditioning window unit by the front door on the outside of the apartment. But Alanis knew this spot was not exactly the safest place to take cover, so he started moving away. But as soon as he took a couple of steps, he said he heard the loudest gunshot he had ever heard in all his life. Crawford had just taken his own life inside his apartment. According to 2020, he used a large revolver to shoot himself in the head as he was lying in bed. When police surveyed the scene and determined it was safe to go inside, Y'all, they ended up finding thousands and thousands of child pornography videos and images on Crawford's computers, which included the murder and torture of women. Sergeant Alanis said, quote, I truly believe that Stephen Crawford lived as a coward and he died as a coward. And that's how I feel about it. End quote. So it was official. Police had finally solved the cold case of Arliss Perry. But they couldn't help but think that Crawford could have easily been involved with or responsible for two other cold cases. Two murders that occurred at Stanford University, one that same year and one a year prior to Arliss's. The first was the murder of 21-year-old Leslie Perlove on February 13, 1973. And the other was the murder of 21-year-old Janet Taylor on March 24, 1974. So let's start with the first murder, that of Leslie Perlove in 1973. Leslie was a Stanford graduate and she was getting ready to go on to law school. It was during this time that she went up to the foothills behind the Stanford campus, which is technically considered the grounds of Stanford University. She drove her orange Chevy Nova to the hills, parked it on the side of the road, and then got out to take some photos of the view from the top of the hills. Her sister, Diane Perlove, told 2020 that Leslie wanted to hire someone to paint a watercolor landscape portrait so she could give it to their mother for her birthday. So that's actually why she was out there taking pictures. But it was during this time, while Leslie was taking photos, that she was brutally attacked. She was beaten and strangled to death, and there were signs that she was sexually assaulted. But Leslie fought for her life to the very end. She was scratching and biting her killer the whole time. We know this because, according to 2020, a lot of evidence was preserved from the crime scene, particularly a lot of DNA evidence, including several fingernail scrapings. There was so much DNA evidence that they were able to test it, which allowed investigators to produce a DNA profile. They assumed the DNA profile would likely match Stephen Crawford's DNA because, I mean, they just officially determined he was in fact responsible for Arliss Perry's murder. But investigators were completely shocked when the DNA did not match that of Crawford's. This meant there was another killer responsible for Leslie's death, and that is pure horror in and of itself, knowing that not one but at least two different men were going around in the 70s killing women at Stanford University. And yes, I said men, because even though the DNA profile didn't match Crawford's, remember, I said they still produced a profile and it did match another male's DNA. 
And all I can say is thank goodness for 23andMe and Ancestry and all those other DNA testing companies because the crime lab developed an investigative lead through genealogy, which led them to a person of interest. That person was a married father of two, John Getru, whom they discovered also worked at Stanford during the time of the murders. Getru worked in the cardiology department and lived just blocks away from Leslie at the time she was killed. After looking into Getru a bit further, Sergeant Noe Cortez, the lead investigator on this particular cold case, and his team discovered that Getru still lived in the Bay Area. So they began following him to collect his DNA, and they were soon able to do just that after Getru discarded a used coffee cup in the trash can. Sergeant Cortez told ABC's 2020, quote, I sent that to the Santa Clara County Crime Lab. They confirmed that the DNA on that item was the same DNA that was underneath the fingernail clippings of Leslie Perlov, end quote. After this, police moved quickly and arrested the then 74-year-old at his home in Hayward, California. According to the Los Angeles Times, Getru was officially arrested and charged with Leslie's murder on November 20th, 2018. Now, though, with him sitting in the Santa Clara County Jail, investigators still had some work to do. You see, they needed to determine if he was the one who murdered yet another woman on the campus of Stanford University, which occurred on March 24, 1974. That person was 21-year-old Janet Taylor, the daughter of Stanford's athletic director at the time, Chuck Taylor. Investigators interviewed by 2020 said that at the time, Janet was living with her boyfriend on the coast of California, but she had a job in the Palo Alto area near the university. Plus, her dad worked for the university. So, of course, Janet was often on campus and around the area. However, she also commonly hitchhiked in the area to get to and from work. I know what you're thinking because I was thinking the same thing. Yes, hitchhiking is dangerous, but it was not considered so dangerous in the 70s. And in fact, it was actually a pretty common way to get around during this time. And cold case investigator Rick Jackson even told 2020, quote, it was a time where people did hitchhike a lot. It was just a common way of getting around. Although parents did not like it and they warned their children against it, it was a pretty common occurrence, end quote. So on March 24th, 1974, Janet had been hanging out with some of her friends at Stanford University. But around dusk at about 7 p.m., she told her friends she needed to leave and go back home to La Honda to feed her dogs. They offered her a ride, but she was so used to hitchhiking that she told them she would just get home that way. She didn't want to put any of them out for a ride, and she was comfortable hitchhiking the short distance home, which was less than 20 miles away. But unfortunately, as I'm sure all of you know where this story is going, Janet did not ever make it home that night. And the next day, at around 10 or 10.30 a.m., someone driving by a drainage ditch off of Sand Hill Road spotted a body and called police. It didn't take them long to identify the deceased person as Janet Taylor. Investigators said Janet had sustained severe trauma where she had been struck several times. Similar to Leslie Perlov's murder, Janet, too, had been severely beaten and strangled, and investigators determined the killing was sexually motivated because her pants had been ripped in the crotch area. But listen to this. 
she was not actually raped or sexually assaulted. You see, Janet had a brown belt in karate and she knew how to defend herself. So she fought and she fought hard. So hard that authorities believe the killer had to actually murder her before he initially wanted to because she was fighting so hard for her life. At the time, though, police didn't have any suspects. They did have a feeling that both Leslie and Janet were murdered by the same person because they had several similarities. For starters, they were the same age. They were both 21 years old. They both suffered blunt force trauma. They were both brutally beaten with bruising to their faces and eyes. And they were both strangled to death on the Stanford University grounds. So now years later, and now that they finally had a DNA profile to work from, the crime lab tested Janet's green corduroy pants she was wearing that night. And they swabbed the torn crotch area. Lo and behold, the profile from Janet's pants matched the same profile as the DNA from Leslie's case. It was official. John Getru had killed both Leslie Perlov and Janet Taylor. So let's talk a little bit more about this terrible, awful excuse of a person, John Getru. Y'all, he had lived a completely normal life. Yes, I'm definitely putting air quotes around normal because I'm saying it in the sense of what most of us would consider normal. He was married to the same woman for 25 years, Linda Caputo, and they remained married until Linda died of cancer in 2003. John and Linda had two children, including a son they named Aaron. And Aaron told 2020 that his father went to their ball games, coached their teams, helped them with their homework, and overall just played a big role in their lives growing up. But Getru had a past that his family did not know about. While Getru may have seemed like the normal family man next door, he was far from what he appeared to be. You see, authorities had actually discovered that years before he was arrested, a man by the name of Evan Williams had come forward and provided a tip to the FBI about a potential killer living in the Bay Area. This man, Evan Williams, was trying to warn police about John Getru, the man whom he said killed his sister, Margaret Williams, all the way back in 1963. Evan said, quote, I'm calling to let you know about a man in California who has committed murder that you probably have no idea about, end quote. Evan explained to 2020 that his father was a military chaplain and their family lived on a military base in Germany. At the time, in 1963, his sister Margaret was 15 years old and a freshman in high school. And Getru, who was also in Germany and went to the same high school, was an 18-year-old junior. During this time, the local teen center was hosting an after-school gathering. Pretty sure it was like a teen dance, but Margaret and Getru both attended the event, which was supposed to end at 10.30 that night. But apparently, it had started raining, so Margaret's father drove to the teen center to pick her up. When he arrived, though, someone told him that he had just missed her and she had recently left about five minutes prior. So he went back home to wait for her, but she never showed up. At first, Margaret's parents were still not super concerned and just hoped that she was delayed due to the rain. But when Margaret was still not home by midnight, they became very worried and called police. 
They said their daughter never misses curfew. She was supposed to be home around 11 p.m., but she was not home and nowhere to be found. So police quickly began searching for Margaret, and they soon found her at 1.11 a.m. She had been raped, strangled, and her lifeless body was left in a baseball field behind the teen center. Right away, police discovered exactly what happened and exactly who was responsible for Margaret's death. At about 10.15 p.m., Margaret left the dance and multiple witnesses saw her walking and talking with Getru. He was officially the last person to see her alive. In 1964, Getru was convicted of murder in the Germany juvenile court system. But it's a bit odd because even though he was a junior in high school at the time, he was already 18. So I'm not sure why he was still convicted as a juvenile rather than an adult, unless maybe 18 was considered to still be a juvenile back then. I'm not sure. And I didn't look it up. (laughs) But nonetheless, his sentence reflected that of a juvenile as well. According to 2020, the maximum sentence for a juvenile at the time was only 10 years for homicide, and Getru only had to serve six years. Then, according to a memo that 2020 obtained, Getru was released from juvenile detention in Germany on March 7, 1969, and as part of his release terms, he was ordered to leave Germany, like get out of the country, within 24 hours of his release. Evan Williams said, quote, they released him on one day and he was on a plane the next day to the United States. It's kind of like Germany going, okay, it's out of our hands, end quote. Yes, I'll wait while you gasp as much as I did while I was researching this story about that. They just let him go back to the United States after six years after he literally killed somebody. Anyway, it was because of this that Evan Williams decided to alert authorities that there was a convicted killer living free among them in California. Evan explained that he did not know at the time at all that Getru had committed any other violent crimes, but he said he just wanted to alert authorities because he thought Getru could potentially be the Golden State Killer, or at the very least, he would definitely commit more violent crimes. And clearly, Evan was exactly right because Getru killed both Leslie Perlov and Janet Taylor. But the story gets even crazier. You see, before he became the so-called loving father and husband that he would cloak himself as being, Getru was married to his first wife, Susan, and he was a stepfather to Susan's daughter, Kathy. From 1970 to 1978, so for eight whole years, Getru sexually molested Kathy, who was only six when the abuse started. Kathy told 2020 that Getru would come into her room at night and she'd wake up with a man in her pants. She said, quote, he wanted me to call him daddy, but in my head, daddies don't do to their little girls what he did to me, end quote. Getru also knew how much Kathy liked pets, and working at the Stanford campus, he would often have the opportunity to find pets, and so he would bring them home to her. Like, one time, she said he brought a rat home for her to keep as a pet, but he eventually decided that the rat needed to die. Y'all, he made Kathy watch him kill the rat. She said he put it in a jar of formaldehyde and made Kathy watch as the rat suffered and died. She also said that this became a regular occurrence of other pets he would bring home to her. Y'all, I just 
can't with the pure cruelty and evilness of this man. However, although this was happening for several years, Kathy said she never told her mom anything Getru had done because, well, he threatened her, not with her own life, but with her mother, Susan's life. Getru told Kathy that if she ever told anyone what was happening, he would hurt or kill her mother. So Kathy, of course, stayed quiet until one day the horror finally came to a stop. While the three of them, Getru, Susan, and Kathy, were away visiting Getru's sister at her home in Salinas, California, Getru took Kathy to a back room and started molesting her. But by God's sheer graces, Susan walked into the room while this was happening and shit immediately hit the fan. Susan pretty much ended their marriage right then and there, but before calling it quits completely, Susan decided to take all three of them to therapy where they could try to work it out through a psychologist. But when the psychologist tried to say, well, this sometimes happens between fathers and stepdaughters, Susan said, the hell it does. What the fuck? And she was officially done after that and divorced the pathetic, worthless man. But here's the thing. He committed the murders of Leslie and Janet while he was married to Susan. And neither Susan nor Kathy, nor the police for that matter, had any idea whatsoever. According to 2020, Getru was basically hiding in plain sight. In the 70s, he played the role of a loving husband and stepfather, or whatever you wanted to call him at the time, but he played that role in Palo Alto. And then in the 80s and 90s, he was the baseball coach and soccer dad to his two other children. And nobody besides his victims had any idea of his true nature. His son, Aaron, who was now married with a child of his own, said, quote, it would be crazy to say he wasn't a loving father. He was a big part of our lives. I felt like our family was the typical all-American family, end quote. However, Aaron does not doubt that his father committed the murders. He knows that DNA and science does not lie. Aaron told 2020, quote, It kind of blew me out of the water, and I thought, there's no way. They got the wrong person, end quote. But Aaron went on to say, quote, I don't want to believe it, but it's reality. It's the truth. I don't doubt that he ever did it. It's just hard to think that it's true. End quote. And since the day Getru was arrested in 2018, Aaron has not spoken to his father. He says now he is having to deal with his own demons and face the fact that his whole childhood was a lie. He also said his father needs to come clean and tell the truth, especially if there were any other victims out there and cold cases he is responsible for that have yet to be solved. According to the LA Times, authorities do speculate that Getru was indeed responsible for additional murders in the area, though they have yet to break any of the cases. Regardless, on September 14th, 2021, it took a San Mateo County jury less than an hour to find John Arthur Getru guilty of the first-degree murder of Janet Taylor. Then, on November 5th of this year, a judge sentenced Getru to life in prison and a $5,000 fine. But let me tell you what else was revealed at the trial for his murder of Janet. According to Palo Alto Online, 
Back in 1975, Getru was accused of raping a Palo Alto teenager in her parents' home, whom, for victim identity purposes, was referred to as Ellen Doe. But he ended up taking a plea deal for the lesser charge of statutory rape. And guess how much time he served in prison? Well, he was sentenced to only six months and a $200 fine. But the court at the time, for some stupid, ridiculous reason I'll never understand, and though it probably has something to do with the good old boy mindset, but the court actually suspended five months of the sentence and the remaining 30 days, he only had to serve those on the weekends. What? If you are saying what the fuck right now, trust me, you're not the only one. At the trial for Janet Taylor, though, the woman he raped all those years ago testified against Getru to help show just how much of a piece of shit he really is. She said that when he assaulted her, he strangled her and threatened to kill her if she didn't submit to his assault. What a loser. Anyway, as of today, December 20th, 2021, he has also been officially charged with the murder of Leslie Perlov, but he has not yet been tried. KIRO7, a CBS affiliate in Seattle, reported that that trial is slated to begin in 2022. However, the outlet reported the ill health of Getru and a backlog due to the COVID-19 pandemic may mean the trial will never take place. But Diane Perlov, Leslie's sister, told ABC News, quote, this is not the end. We are moving forward. I want a trial for my sister's case. I don't want any deals. There were some really horrible photographs of what Getru did to Janet and what he did to Leslie, and I want everyone to see them so they understand what a dangerous person he is, end quote. According to Palo Alto Online, Getru is scheduled to appear in Santa Clara County Superior Court for a trial-setting conference for Leslie Perlov's murder on January 19th, 2022. And as long as this prick stays alive and makes it to the trial, I'm pretty sure we all know what that verdict will be. And although I, of course, want justice for Leslie Perlov and her surviving family, I do have some solace in knowing that this old mother effort will spend the rest of his sad life in prison, however long that may be. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 21. As always, be sure to check out this podcast on social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. I'm at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and at Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. And of course, keep those reviews coming. Or if you've already reviewed me on Apple Podcasts, just go tell your friends about me. That would be the best way to really spread the word about Campus Crime Chronicles. Also, you guys, I just want to give you a heads up that this will be the last Chronicle of the year. So Chronicle 21 is the last Chronicle of 2021. So I'll resume in January, probably the middle of January sometime. I'll let you guys know on social media exactly when I'll be coming back in January of 2022, but be expecting some good things from Campus Crime Chronicles. You guys have made it a great year and I couldn't be more happy with where Campus Crime Chronicles has gone and how far I've come since since first starting. So thank you guys for everything you've done and thank you for all the reviews and the support. And you guys are just really awesome. So happy new year, Merry Christmas, all those things, all the good vibes toward you guys. And yeah, I'll see you guys in 2022.
Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in 2022 for the next Chronicle. must-read mystery is Meredith Adamo's Not Like Other Girls. A girl's search for her missing classmate digs up dangerous secrets in this unputdownable feminist thriller, perfect for fans of Veronica Mars and a good girl's guide to murder. 